1870. France has overthrown its Bonaparte rulers, and the Emperor is a prisoner of the Franco-Prussian War. Today, we pick up where we left off and ask the question, what happens when a displaced French Empress lands in Victorian England? Hey everyone, it's Christine. Welcome to the second half of my footnoting history podcast about the exile of Empress Eugenie Bonaparte. As mentioned in the little opening tag you just heard, it's still 1870, and we are going to pick up right where we ended last time. Napoleon III, having been on the losing side of the Franco-Prussian War, is in captivity in the King of Prussia's Summer Palace, which, at one point, had been owned by Napoleon III's uncle Jerome, so he could be a lot worse off than he is. Meanwhile, his wife, the Empress Eugenie, faced angry mobs of French people and had to run away from Paris to make her way to England. When last we saw her, she was on a yacht owned by an English couple called the Gazelle, accompanied by one of her friends and an American dentist named Dr. Thomas Evans. Oh, right, and they were sailing into a gale. A gale that had Eugenie's attendant on her knees praying for survival. By the time our travelers landed on the English coast, they were rather conspicuous because they looked pretty terrible, they were exhausted, and they didn't have much luggage with them. They learned, rather sadly, that the cousin of the gazelle's owner had also sailed through the gale, but he and most of his crew lost their lives. It hit home just how lucky they were to have survived the crossing. But something else had an even greater impact on the empress, news that her son was safe. When she found out, it was in the most amusing way. Dr. Evans purchased a morning newspaper, and in it there was an article about how Louis Bonaparte had landed on the English coast. Without any rest, Eugenie and Cruz set off for Hastings, where there was a reunion of mother and child that must have been fantastic. Her husband had mercifully had the forethought to send Louis away from the front when things turned bad. He had a small contingent of protectors and made his way quietly to England. There was still, however, the question of where to live. Eugenie had developed a deep friendship with Queen Victoria on an imperial visit years ago, and it was still true, but she couldn't ask her for help with something because it would have been seen as a political statement. Finding a home would be her own task, and soon she and Louis were living at Camden Place in Kent. Members of Eugenie's French court slowly made their way over and became part of her household there. Dr. Evans, with his job complete, did not remain in England, though he would never truly be separated from his association with the Second Empire. Years later, when he returned to the United States to oversee the burial of his wife Agnes, reporters showed up at his doorstep, wanting to know if he was there to sell off land that he had allegedly secretly purchased for the emperor and empress years before. It was not unlike the hounding of the press today, but of course, Evan cleared up the rumors with a firm no. This does, however, create one interesting question. If you're living in exile as an empress, or an emperor for that matter, what do you do for money? Well, it appears that our Bonapartes were never destitute. Lands that the family owned on the continent were sold, but a majority of their funds came from Eugenie's jewelry. Although when she escaped Paris, she carried little with her, much of her personal collection was smuggled to her later on. She would periodically sell the pieces, 
And if you think about this when we get to the end of this podcast, you'll realize just how valuable these pieces must have been to fund such a long life. But anyway, outside of one small disagreement via letter between the exiled Eugenie and the captive Napoleon III, there was never a fully mounted attempt to retake France. Eugenie had proposed trying to return to France but not to Paris, and once she was set up somewhere else, she was going to try and contact the opposition forces of Prussia and procure good terms to end the war. Once that was done, her plan was to then go, hey French people, look what we did for you. After all, she had never technically abdicated as regent. Napoleon III shut down the idea, saying it was important for them to live with quiet dignity now, instead of meddling in the affairs of the rest of the war. By March of 1871, the war between France and Prussia was over, with France on the losing side, and three big things happened. The German lands involved unified into a German empire. Napoleon III was officially deposed as emperor on paper. And, three, he was released from captivity. Well, now he was useless to anyone because he had no power, so he was allowed to go home to his family in England. It should be noted that Napoleon III was greeted by an enthusiastic crowd of well-wishers when he first landed in England. I'm sure his family welcome was greater, but this one is still kind of interesting. Soon, word was leaking over from France that the new government was not universally adored. There were glimmers of hope that if Napoleon III came back, he would not be turned away but a plan for that would never actually come to pass. I mentioned in the last episode that he was not the healthiest man in the world. He was prone to debilitating attacks of pain, and in January of 1873, things took a turn for the worst. What was the cause that knocked down our emperor? Bladder stones. If you've ever had any sort of stone, you can identify with the pain he must have felt. Surgery was performed, but regardless of the efforts of his medical team, he died only days later, on January 9, 1873. It was a blow to Eugenie and to any hopes for the restoration of the Bonaparte dynasty, to be sure, but it was nothing compared to the devastation coming in 1879. By that point, Eugenie had settled into a relatively quiet life in England. She received guests like Queen Victoria and the Prince of Wales, She stayed out of the limelight, and she watched her son grow up. Louis had begun training with the British Army shortly before his father's death. He was to specialize in artillery, like most of his Bonaparte relatives, and he was genuinely well-liked despite being a displaced French imperial heir living in exile. At the end of the 1870s, Britain was experiencing conflict in Africa. In this, Louis saw the opportunity to gain war experience that he lacked, but he believed a young man of his breeding should definitely have. He was aware that the hopes of imperialists rested on him, and he needed to establish himself. No one wanted him to go at first, because just like royals today, he would have been a target. But eventually, through the intercession of Queen Victoria, who loved him like one of her own, it was agreed that he could go as part of a small group. But he would never return. In June of 1879, Louis was killed, not in a major battle, but in a tiny skirmish with the Zulus. When his group was set upon by the Zulus, the soldiers tried to get away, but Louis was not as fortunate as the others. His horse bolted and he landed on the ground, stranded. When his body was discovered, he was covered in puncture wounds, but they were all wounds to the front, which has been taken as a sign that he died facing his foes rather than running away. 
The former heir to the imperial throne of France was only 23 years old and died in the uniform of a foreign country. The news broke his mother. She would never be the same again and permanently embrace the color black. A determined middle-aged woman, Eugenie insisted on seeing where her son died. She traveled all the way to southern Africa, and on the anniversary of his death, she spent the night outside next to the cross that marked where he was killed. The trip was utterly necessary for her, but it was exhausting, and when she returned to England, the memories were too painful in Camden Place, and she wanted to move. Further to that, she felt she needed to provide her husband and son with the resting place they deserved, but would not receive at home. No matter how many foreign heads sent their respects, it would not make up for the fact that they would have to be buried as they died, in exile. The place she chose for her new home and the family's final resting spot is less than an hour from London by present-day trains. She purchased a pair of hills separated by the railway line in a town called Farnborough. If you travel there now, it's nice to think that you are riding on the same train line that was there in Eugenie's day, cutting between the two hills. On one hill was Eugenie's new home, the aptly named Farnborough Hill, which is now a school. When Queen Victoria visited it, she commented in her journal that it was a very pretty place, and that Eugenie told her the fabric on one of her sofas was made from the last dress she ever wore in the Tuileries, so she was very resourceful. Also, she recreated, down to the tiniest detail, the rooms that her son had once occupied, but she did so in her new home, where he had never lived. The rooms contained all of his old belongings and served as a physical reminder of her constant grief over the loss of her only child. Across from her home on the Twin Hill stands St. Michael's Abbey, currently home to the brothers of the Catholic Benedictine Order. In November of 2014, I actually had the pleasure of visiting St. Michael's. It's open for tours several times a month, and I've put the information for it on footnotinghistory.com because you should really visit there if you have a chance. It's absolutely beautiful and more beautiful once you know the story behind why it was built. I'd also like to give a shout out of gratitude to Ms. Knight for arranging my visit and Maria for being a wonderful, wonderful tour guide. That trip was actually the inspiration for this two-part podcast on Eugenie's exile. Everything about the church is French, including the name, St. Michael being the patron saint of France. To see it is to forget that you're in England and feel like you're actually in France. The Gothic architecture includes a dome reminiscent of Napoleon I's resting place in Paris and gargoyles that hang off the side watching you as you enter. Keeping up with Eugenie's trend of reusing her old clothes, her wedding dress was donated for use as church garments, which, by the way, is fantastic for the church, but really sad for those of us who wish we could see the dress. Beneath the church, where Eugenie would eventually join her husband and son, is the crypt. She had a private entrance, and Napoleon III and Louis were interred in sarcophagi donated by Queen Victoria. In a touching display of loyalty, there are two burial plots outside the crypt's entrance, both belonging to former members of the Bonaparte household who wished to have their remains kept near those they attended to for years. We could say that this is the end. Eugenie had established a tribute to her family that would never exist in France, but it wasn't the end. She lived a long time after, enough time, in fact, to make two rather interesting contributions to World War I. First, she donated a wing of her home as a hospital for wounded soldiers. She wanted the best for her convalescing servicemen, 
and was reported as even testing out things like wheelchairs herself to make sure that they were good enough, which I would have loved to have seen. She would later be given the insignia of the Order of the British Empire, granted by King George V and presented to her by the future kings Edward VIII and George VI. Second, she had a small part in helping the country that had cast her aside. When the Franco-Prussian War, the one that had caused her to flee to England in the first place, ended, France had lost the territory of Alsace and Lorraine to the German Empire. When it reached Eugenie that France might not fight for the return of this area at the conclusion of World War I, she sent over a letter that she had saved that dated all the way back to 1871. In it, the Prussian king-turned-German-emperor stated that the territory needed to be annexed for the Germans for strategic reasons in case they ever had to fight France again, and not because it was believed to rightfully belong to them. The letter contributed to the growing belief that Alsace and Lorraine needed to be part of France again, which, you may note in current times, it is. It was her only real political interference in the 20th century, but she must have felt good knowing that she contributed to the restoration of lands that had been lost in a war that began under her family's watch. In July of 1920, on a trip to her native Spain, Empress Eugenie passed away. She was 94 years old and had outlived her husband, her son, her closest friend, Queen Victoria, and most of the names associated with the Second Empire. Her body was taken to Farnborough under the Union flag of Great Britain, and the funeral was attended by King George V and Queen Mary, as well as the monarchs of Spain and Portugal. The royal artillery was there, but the French government, having one last word against her, objected to Britain's plans to give the late empress a 21-gun salute, so their presence was silent. She had once set the fashion world of Europe alight with her use of caged skirts and crinoline, but she was buried in a nun's habit, though she had never officially taken orders. At the time of her death, Eugenie had lived in exile for over twice as long as she was reigning empress, and unless something drastic happens in the future, there is one title she still holds. She was the last woman to wear the crown of France. So, if you're ever in England, remember, you can pay a visit to St. Michael's Abbey in Farnborough and see the peace of France that she created in exile as a memorial and resting place for the family she loved. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. See you next week.